0: It fits so well with what I want to share and talk about this morning. If you take your Bibles and head to the book of Acts, please. The book of Acts, we're starting in chapter 1 and then we're going to jump to chapter 8, the book of Acts. I wanted to just compliment you and talk a little bit about our missions conference, missions month that we had. How great you were as a congregation. Every one of our missionary guests said to me afterwards in private conversation how encouraged they were, how refreshed they were by your fellowship, by your talking to them, by your, even in services, just your attentiveness. It was, to them, it was an extremely refreshing time, even though we did work them hard, kept them busy. They just said time and again that they were spiritually and socially refreshed. Thank you for doing that. And yet at the same time, I want to commend you, I want to talk about it. but what we just heard, it's not us, it's Christ. It's all of Christ. Some have talked about how you're giving, they called it legendary, and I got notes about that from other other people this week, and even some other missionaries who want to come, Uh, (laughs) uh, who have asked if they could be invited in the future. But it's not us, it's Christ. All the glory goes to Christ. The, the, miss, miss, the missions conference, the work that you put into it, Christ gets the glory. And yet we don't want it to stop. We heard last week about a lot of stories, uh, last week and the weeks before, and to me they were just some of the uh, most blessed parts of the conference, was hearing the different stories of where God is working in people's hearts and lives. And how he's using different people and how even, you know, one person is getting saved and they're talking to their classmates and they're talking. I just found that so encouraging, so uplifting. So I thought this morning what I want to do is I want to tell you a story. Another story about somebody who was involved in missions. This one's from the Bible. It's a character that we have to go back and we start off and understand. He's living in a time period where Jesus has told the disciples. In Matthew, he said, Go ye therefore and teach literally, make disciples. Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe what of all things whatsoever I have commanded, and lo, I am with you always. That same idea then was repeated as Jesus is ascending to heaven, and he has the, the disciples out on the mountainside, and there he's lifting up. He's going and he says, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost is upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and then unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, a lot of people got involved with that. A lot of people took that to heart, and they started moving. And so in the book of Acts, as you start going to chapter 1 and chapter 2, they're getting the word out. They're sharing it with their friends, their family, in Jerusalem. They're impacting the city. And we read through the book of Acts how there was added unto them 3,000 people getting saved in one day. That then there was added to the church daily, such as should be saved. Then there was believers, the more attitude as the story goes on, multitudes of them. And again, the number of the disciples multiplied. And there was a lot of people getting saved. And they were following the Lord. And there were some problems. There were some issues that came up because whenever you get people together, you have problems. And there was some concern about helping to care for the widows. And that was the beginning of the deacons. But then as the story goes, you all of a sudden hit where all of a sudden they have the problem of persecution. It starts in chapter 7, where Stephen is stoned. And then we come to chapter 8, because what happens up to that point, the people haven't been moving out of the city of Jerusalem. Remember, they were told to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. They have absolutely They have flooded Jerusalem with the gospel. Not everybody's responded, but they have inundated the city with the gospel. Many people have gotten saved, but they haven't spread out. Persecution comes, and as a result, all of a sudden you go to chapter 8, verse 1. And you read there about the persecution that not only had Stephen been killed, but now Saul, he's going to become the Apostle Paul. But at this time, he still isn't a believer. He was consenting unto Stephen's death. And at that time, there was great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were scattered abroad. I remind you, they were told to go into Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. When the persecution happened, where did they go? Where did they spread out to? Where? Judea, Samaria. They are finally moving out to where God had told them to move. Isn't it interesting that God used persecution to light the flame of the gospel in other regions? Uh, This is me. This is just, I I have no, thus saith the Lord, to back this up. Could God be working in the Ukrainians where the gospel has flooded for years, where there are lots of churches, it has been a hotbed of of, uh, missionary work for the last 25 years. Could God be using them to move out of the Ukraine and into other parts of Europe that need the gospel and they are taking it with them? Is there a possibility that God could do that? I don't know why it's happening, but could that be a positive effect, sharing the gospel in regions that have gotten cold. It happened there in the book of Acts. And one of the people that it talks about in chapter 8, the story then picks up and says, okay, the disciples are spreading. Look at the next couple verses. We're introduced to one man who did the spreading of the gospel. His name is Philip. And then we start reading about Philip, who he has gone out. And it says in verse 5, he went down to the city of Samaria and preached the gospel unto them. And so this fellow now takes center stage in the rest of chapter 8. It's going to talk about him and what he's doing. We don't have a lot of information about him, but this guy is an interesting character. What we do know about him is really, really informative and challenging you know, and, and inspiring. We know that this fellow, he was genuinely concerned about all kinds of people. He wasn't an individual who sat in a church and had a prejudice against people who didn't speak his language or who weren't the same color or weren't the same age. This fella was broad-based in his compassion and concern for other people. How do I know that? Well, earlier in the book, we know that he was one of the seven deacons that was chosen. When well, we read about that whole story in Acts chapter 6. He's one of those fellows who was supposed to be picked out by the church and to care for the widows, which he got involved in. Caring for those who were neglected, those who had lost their husbands, those who had nothing to offer him. He got involved in their lives. As you go through this chapter, in verse 5, it says he moved up into Samaria. Samaria is that region filled with Samaritans. The Samaritans, you and I know this much from our Bible. From little on, we've heard, if we've been in Sunday school, that the Samaritans and the Jews, they got along like oil and water. That they were enemies, traditional, perpetual enemies. The Jews wouldn't walk on the same side of the street as a Samaritan. They wouldn't even travel through their territory if it required staying overnight. They had wanted nothing to do with them. Jesus highlighted that when he told the story of the good Samaritan who responded different than most of the Samaritans and Jews treated each other by this man helping somebody because traditionally they were at each other's throat. They were just, they were at odds. But here it is, Philip, a believer, he has compassion for the Samaritans. He wants them to hear the gospel. He's not like Jonah where Jonah didn't want to go to traditional enemies, the Ninevites. Philip reached out to people he wouldn't normally reach out to, or what his family and friends would tell him not to reach out to. Then the story continues in this account, that as the Spirit leads him, he runs into a man, down in verse 26, the angel of the Lord spake, said, Arise, go south unto the city uh, south from Jerusalem, unto Gaza. And he arose and went, and behold, he meets a man, an Ethiopian, a eunuch of great authority, of the queen of Candace, the, of the Ethiopians who had charge of all of her treasury. So this man was royalty. This man was wealthy. He was powerful. He would be like in the president's cabinet. He was one of that authority and of that, that stature. This individual was one that was single, whether by design or because of impairment that was inflicted upon him. This man was an individual who was powerful, who was different than Philip. Philip has a family. Philip's married. But Philip reached out to him. So it it just struck me, Philip cares for all kinds of people. And I started thinking and listening, he cared for men, he cared for ladies. He cared for Jews, he cared for Gentiles. He's the type of individual who cared for older folk. He cared for younger people. He's the type of individual who administered to people who were considered enemies, foreigners. He would minister to people who lived down the street from him. He was the type of individual who he reached out to those who were acceptable, those who were like the Jewish widows that they were told to be concerned about or the rejected. He reached out to the Samaritans. He reached out to a man who was a eunuch who, according to law, Could not go into the temple. He wasn't allowed to. And yet Philip is ministering to this individual. A rich man. Poor widows. Didn't make any difference. Didn't make any difference if they were lowly and ignored or if they were exalted. Philip had a compassion for all people. We just come off a missions conference where we're glad that the missionaries have compassion on all kinds of people. But the question is, what about you? Do you have compassion for all types of individuals, all classes? Do you give tracts? Do you have, invite for a Bible study? Would you open your home? Would you teach? Would you be involved with ministering to all types of people? We talk about it, we think about it, but we should be acting upon it in the days ahead. And like Philip, not only have compassion for all types of people, we should be controlled by the Holy Spirit, by the Spirit of God. How do I know that? Well, we read that what the story involves, he's kicked out of Jerusalem with the persecution with many of the other believers. He goes to Samaria. When he goes up into the Samaritan region, man, does he have a ministry. Look at to verse 5, where it's talking about what happens. He went down, down from Jerusalem in the size as far as altitude and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip was speaking hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Unclean spirits, crying with loud voices, came out of many that were possessed. And many taken with palsies that were lame were healed. There's great joy in this city. We jump a little bit further down to verse 12. When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And so the story continues that he is having such an impact that the apostles hear about it. They... Want to come and see what 's going on, and when they come up they 're thrilled that these enemies of the Jews are responding to the gospel, and they tarried the gospel out to other people and we read as we go down to the very end of the paragraph verse twenty five and when they the, the apostles, when they had testified and preached the Word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem and they preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans there They're impacted. They're infected with this compassion for others, and they take the gospel to people that they normally wouldn't. So here he is, Philip is is doing this, and at that moment while he's doing it, having great ministry, the angel of the Lord says to him, leave this place and go to a desert. He's in the middle of a city. He's in the middle of a hub of activity. There's villages all around. People are getting saved. And the Spirit of God, the angel of the Lord says, I want you to leave this go to a desert. Not a lot of people in the desert. These people need me to teach them, to guide them. They're baby Christians. But when the Spirit of the Lord, when the angel of the Lord says to him, I want you to go down, we read that comment down in verse 26 that we read. What does he do? When When the angel of the Lord says, go down into the desert region. It says to him or it says about him, he arose and went. That's because God had appointed this. It seems strange in my mind. It seems strange probably in other people's minds. Why would you do that? Because God has an appointment. Has God ever done that to you? He's put you in a unique situation, but it was a God appointment. Where all of a sudden there was an opportunity for you to minister that wouldn't have been there. If you hadn't been willing and yielded to the Spirit of God. That all of a sudden, God is just placing you at the most convenient spot. Ian Williams, who was a preacher and evangelist back in the 70s, he talked about how one time after he held meetings, he was getting on the plane. He was an older gentleman, and so after the meetings, he was wore out. He thought, I'm going to be able to sleep now for several hours as we go cross-country. And so he got nestled up in his seat. He's ready to fall asleep, and all of a sudden from across the aisle, he hears this pssst, pssst, and a tap on his arm. And he looks over and there's a guy. He says, hey, mister, do you know anything about the Bible? And he said, well, why is that? He said, a friend of mine have been telling me this past week I should read John chapter 3, a story about a guy by the name of Nicodemus and Jesus. And I got it here and I'm reading, but I don't understand what it's about. Do you know anything about the Bible to explain this? That's a God appointment, Right? And if you're not willing or being led by the Spirit, you know, you may miss those God appointments. He didn't. He shared with a man. The man got saved that evening. There's a pastor in Chicago who writes about his experience that there in Chicago, sometimes it gets cold in Chicago. And sometimes people in Chicago do what we do. We forget to put the garbage out. You ever ever do that at night? You go, oh, garbage man's coming in the middle of the night. Got to get the can out there. And so this pastor said, I remembered I got to get the garbage out. And it's cold, but I got to get it down there pretty quick. And so he thought, I'll just run out real quick. I won't put shoes on. I'll just run out in my shorts, and I'll get the garbage can down. None of you have never done that? Okay. (laughs) So he ran the can down, and when he got the can down to the bottom, he looked up, and a guy had and a family had moved in right across the street from him just in the last couple of weeks. He had yet not met him. That guy's bringing his trash down. And he said, it wasn't a voice he heard audibly, but there was a prompting that said, go and talk to him. And his response was, no, God, it's cold. Go and talk to him. And so he ran across the street in his bare feet, introduced himself, and you know talked very briefly, And said, we'll talk to you again. Well, that started garbage can conversations every week. Which led to, hey, why don't we do lunch together? Which led to several lunches together, which led to leading that man to Jesus Christ. He got saved. And is now a follower of Christ serving in the church. The pastor who had the most impact in my life, that I got got saved under his ministry, called to the ministry, Pastor Kittle. At his funeral just a few weeks ago, somebody stood up and talked about how he took advantage of a God moment, a God appointment. How this man had bought the house right next door to Pastor Kittle's house. And they weren't living in the house yet, but they were just going through and it was his house, he was responsible. And in Minnesota, it snows once in a while. And so when it snows, they have rules that you got to get your sidewalk cleared and and stuff within a short period of time. And this guy wasn't living there at the house, but he was responsible because now it was his house to make sure everything's cleared within 24 hours after the snow. And he still wasn't living in town, so he called somebody and hired somebody to go over there, shovel the, the sidewalk, shovel the, uh, the driveway. And he got a phone call a little bit later and said, hey, it's all done. It's all done. Oh, don't know who did it. Hmm. Next snow came a few days later, same thing. Your driveway's all shoveled, all cleared. And he only found out afterwards that what it was is Pastor Kittle, who had retired from ministry, didn't retire from serving the Lord. But he was retired from vocational ministry. But he still had a real burden for people. This was his new neighbor. He hadn't even met him yet. But whenever it snowed, he thought that it would be appropriate for him to try to show Christian love and open up an opportunity that he, at 75 years or 80 years old, would take his snowblower and blow not only his driveway and sidewalk, but his neighbor's. And so when the neighbor finally moved in, they met, and the next snow, Pastor Kittle was out there blowing his driveway. Once again, he learned who it was. This became a friendship, a friendship that turned into a Bible study. A Bible study that turned into that man and wife bowing and asking Christ to become their Savior. Does God ever do that with you? That he puts you in these appointments, in these occasions, where he wants you to minister to somebody, to share the gospel, to help build up them and their faith, to encourage somebody who's discouraged. And those God moments are very important. And only if we are yielded to the Spirit of God do we Do we take advantage and can God work? Philip was one of those guys when God prompted him, he arose and went. Even though he's leaving something very active, even though he's leaving some baby Christians who would use him, God said, go to the desert. Don't know who's there. Don't know why I'm going there, but God is leading. He goes. And when he gets there, the Spirit of God speaks to him when he sees this, this rich man, this powerful man, This man that obviously would have some type of caravan, he's there, and God says, go and speak to him. And, And it's interesting that as the story unfolds and you read these words where he sees the man, verse 29, then the Spirit said, go near, join yourself to this chariot. Go and speak to this guy. And then we read the next three or four words in verse 30. What does Philip do? It didn't say he went, he ran. He ran at the leading of the Spirit of God. He hurried. Now, I don't know about you, I'm at that age where I don't run anymore. When the grandkids say, let's go running, I say, go, go. They say, we'll beat you, you will, go. I'm giving up running. But when it comes to responding to the Spirit of God, no matter what our age, we should run to respond. Be quick to do what the Spirit of God wants when he prompts us, when he encourages us, when he challenges us, when he wants us to teach, to minister, to give out the gospel, do you run? Do you run in response to the Spirit? Are you being directed by the Spirit of God? Well, that's Philip. But there's something else that strikes me about Philip. He was not only concerned about lots of other people, he was not only one who was controlled by the Spirit of God, he was committed to sharing the whole counsel of God, the whole gospel the reason I say that is the conversation that takes place when he joins the chariot. It's interesting, just as it, 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 it evolves here. He ran, he says to the man, verse 30, Do you understand what you read? He said, How can I except some man should guide me? And he, the Ethiopian eunuch, desired Philip that he would come up and sit with him there in the chariot. The place of the scripture which he was reading was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so opened he not his his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation for his life is taken from the earth. He's reading from Isaiah 53. 52 and 53 are passages in the Old Testament that are talking about the suffering Messiah, the suffering Savior. The Jews, even though it seems so clear to you and me, the Jews would preach and teach that this is not a person suffering, but it's the Jews. It's the nation. And so this man, who's a proselytite towards the Jews, but he can't really worship in the temple because he's a eunuch, he still hasn't heard complete uh, understanding of this text. But he's familiar with it. And he's reading Old Testament scriptures. So he's wondering, you know, what does it mean? And he asks the question, and he says to Philip, I pray thee of whom speaks the prophet, of himself or of another person or another man or, as the Jews would say, the nation? And then we read these words. We read that Philip then opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached unto him, what's your Bible say? Jesus, okay? That's important. And as they came on their way, they came to certain water, and the eunuch said, "Here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized?" Philip says, "If you believe you with, if you believe with all your heart, you may." And he answered and said, "I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God." So he commanded the chariot to stand still. They went down both into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptized the eunuch. And when they were come up out of the water, the spirit caught away Philip. So what you have here is Philip sharing the gospel. There's a lot written on this. There's a lot of good information, folk. This is worth your Bible study, how to share the gospel. How was it done by this man? And it's really clear that what he does is he asks questions. Do you understand? And he, he, he lets the man ask him questions. That's really important. Just working questions at times. So you're getting input and you're getting conversation back and forth. It's very important that we begin where the person is. What What do they understand? What do, we, uh, what do we know that they believe? What do, we, uh, what do we know about their understanding of Scripture? And then build upon it. But what's really more important is he used Scriptures. He used the Scriptures as the gospel witness. He let the Word of God, which is the power of Christ, the power of the Word of God, that which permeates and divides asunder, even down into the heart, the marrow. He used Scriptures He just didn't give opinion. He shared the Bible, spoke from the Bible. And he made it very clear. And most importantly, he focused on Christ. He didn't talk about a church. He didn't talk about the politics of the day. He focused on Jesus Christ. He preached unto him Jesus. Told him about his need for Christ. And then what happens is Philip apparently taught him more. Taught him more than just getting born again. He taught as much as he could in the moments that he had. How do I know that? How do I know that he taught him more? Without hesitation. Because as they go along, all of a sudden the man says, there's a pool of water. What's hindering me from getting baptized? That man knew about baptism. Who told him about that? Who explained that he needs to get baptized? Philip obviously told him more than just, you need to be born again, because the command that Jesus gave wasn't for you and I just to go and share the idea of getting born again. He said, make disciples. Now that begins with getting them born again. But he said, make disciples of all peoples, of all nations. Philip's doing that. Philip's going to minister to Samaritans, eunuchs. He's going to minister to all ages, all classes. He's trying to reach all nations. And he's sharing the word of God, so this man comes to a point where he says, I believe in Jesus. But Philip also obviously went further, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. In Philip's carrying out the gospel, he carried out not only the message that Jesus saves, but you need to follow Jesus in believers' baptism. That you need to follow the word of God and live by the word of God. In this text, okay, it teaches us some things about baptism that are very important. It teaches us that baptism was a part of the Great Commission. Though many of us in this room, when we witness, we don't want to talk about it. Some of you don't even want me to preach about it. Because you say we overemphasize it. But I want to remind you, it was part of the Great Commission. Baptism was was very important to Jesus. Teach all nations, baptizing them. That's from the word, the mouth of Jesus Christ. He considered baptism important. As well, Philip considered it important. As he's talking to this man, taking advantage of what moments he has he obviously has relayed to him truths about baptism that the man wants to get baptized and wonders, what do I need to do now? It ought to be important to you and me. It ought to be an important biblical truth that we teach, that we encourage. It's got to be important to our missionaries. I'm glad that our missionaries talk about people getting saved, but I'll guarantee you that the missionaries, before they come here, I want to know what do they teach about baptism. Because if they aren't teaching on baptism, they're not making full disciples. The command by Jesus Christ is you teach them to become a disciple. That is, get saved, get baptized, and grow in the Lord. And so what happens here is Philip does it. The reason he does it is because baptism is, was, and is a picture of what Christ has done for you and what you are doing for Christ. You see, when we go through the Gospels, we know that according to the Scriptures, Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day. We know that that happened. Well, baptism, biblical baptism, which is, can only be done in one way, not sprinkling, not pouring, but putting under the water. That's what the word baptism means. It means to immerse, to dunk. That, can, that, that pictures Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Going down and coming up. You're picturing, what did Jesus do for me? But you're also picturing, what am I going to do for Jesus? What am I going to do? It's the idea that you have died to your old ways, your selfish ways. It's buried now. You're not going to live for yourself anymore. But rather, what you're going to do is you're going to live for Christ. Which means you're going to put off sin. You're going, to, you're going to try to be wholly loyal to him. So baptism is a picture of what Christ has done for you and what you will do for Christ. It's part of the Great Commission. We know that this is Jesus Christ's prescribed way for you and me to identify with him. That I have called upon him to be my savior, that I'm going to live for him. You know, there's things that we like to identify with. There are certain things that we will, gladly, we will gladly wear. We're proud to wear because you do know whose colors these are. Yes, Minnesota Vikings. Do I throw this away? Oh, no, I cherish it. I do not have... As some of you say I have an altar in my house to the Vikings. I do not. Anymore. Okay. But, but I identify with them. So I got this shirt that you gave me years ago and a tie. And I'll wear the things because I identify with them. There's something else that I don't have any problem identifying with um, We were in Romania a few years ago. We were preaching and that morning after we'd done a Sunday preaching, that Monday we're going to a place and it's a gypsy, they called it the gypsy um, uh, bazaar, okay, uh, marketplace. And so we, you know, the missionary who's taking us says, whatever you do, don't look like a tourist. (laughs) You're going to a gypsy market. Don't look like a tourist. I looked down and I thought, is this out of place then? The shirt that I had on? <laughs> but I was proud of this shirt. I don't mind being being called an American. It's something we identify with. Well, Jesus is saying, Are you proud of me? Are you proud of, of what I have done? What I've given you? Then you wear me. You show me. You get baptized. You follow and you identify and you say, I'm a believer. I'm going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to live for him. The way you do that is, first thing you do is you get baptized. It's a part of the message. It was performed by going into the water. This is just so, so clear. They went down into the water. The only way that you can show death, burial, and resurrection is by immersion. You can't do it by sprinkling. The, uh, sprinkling is never even used in the New Testament to describe th- where baptism appears. It's done by going down into the water, and then you come back out of the water, coming up saying, I'm going to live for Jesus Christ. Something else that strikes me in this text, it was promoted. Baptism was promoted. It was encouraged. Obviously, because this man says, well, what hinders me? Why Can I you know, get baptized now? That he was promoted by Philip. But you go through the rest of the New Testament. Okay? And G and he says, he says, you can get baptized, but only if you believe. Only if you believe. It doesn't work for babies to get baptized, they have yet to believe. But when you go through the New Testament, you have the idea that the baptism to the disciples, to the apostles, it was so important they commanded people to get baptized who were believers. But it had to be after they believed. Belief in Christ comes first. Well, look at the passage we read just a few moments ago. Look up in chapter 8, verse 12, where it makes the comment, when they believed Philip preaching the things, then they were baptized. And then it says in verse 13, Simon himself, he believed, and then he's baptized. You go through the book of Acts, every time you have baptism, there's belief ahead of time. For those people like me, like some of you who were baptized as babies, that doesn't count. That isn't, that, that, that isn't biblical baptism. That's why for me, as I was instructed in the word of God by Pastor Kittle and others, when I got saved at the age of 16, I had to submit to believer's baptism, biblical baptism, going down under the water to show that I have died to myself and I'm going to live for Christ. Why? Because he died for me and rose again. And it can only be done by immersion. That's biblical baptism. And we see that throughout the Word of God, that after they believed, then they're baptized. But what strikes me really out of this text about baptism is that the new believer pursued after it. They wanted to be baptized. This eunuch wasn't like modern day. Modern day, there are some people who say, well, I'll wait until later. Uh, I I don't need to. It's not important. Or, or, you know, uh, I I, I just, you know, I'm, I'm afraid of water. No, this guy... When he believed in Christ, he wanted to identify with Jesus. He wanted to get baptized. And you see that throughout the New Testament. You see that those individuals who, what happens is, once they believed, one of the first things, Peter, uh, I'm sorry, Paul, he's blind. He's sitting in the house. He's called upon Christ. Ananias comes in. He receives his sight. What's the first thing he does? He gets baptized. You have that situation where he's in the city preaching to by the riverside. Lydia comes, the seller of purple. She comes, she listens. She believes she's immediately baptized, in those who are with her. The jailer, after the jailer has has uh, taken them uh, out of the jail and he's taking care of their wounds, it says he believes in what they said and he and his house, they were baptized. You have it in the New Testament that people want to get baptized. So how does this all come together for us? Following up missions around the world. It, it, it brings us to missions here in Lebanon. It brings us back to this spot. That if we want missionaries to go out, we better be teaching preaching and practicing it here. That means that if you have not yet asked Christ to be your Savior, if you're like the Ethiopian eunuch, you're here, you're searching, you're looking for, what does the Scripture say? Then let me tell you that what you need to do is you need to call upon Christ. Now is the day of salvation. That Jesus is the only way to get to the Father. He's the way to truth and life, and no man comes unto the Father but by him. But whosoever believeth on him shall be saved. Call upon the name of the Lord. You need to be born again. That isn't just a message for people around the world. When I was doing one of the funerals during the month of missions, one of the people who was here in one of the services for the funerals came up to me afterwards and said, what is with your church with all those flags all over? What does that mean? I made comment. That's, you know, these are missions. This is missions month. These are different countries that we're interested in, in all countries, but many of them in particular, we've had missionaries visit. And her comment to me was very interesting. She says, oh yeah, people around the world, they need that. I said, well, what about you? Oh, I'm okay. I'm, I'm making my way to heaven by myself. Well, that's the way a lot of people think. You know what? You will not get to heaven by yourself. You need a savior. You need Jesus Christ. If you have become a true believer, you've called upon Christ, you've asked him to save you, then what you need to do is get baptized if you haven't done so. You need to get baptized, biblically baptized. Don't look back and say, well, as a child, not unless you were saved before you were immersed. Otherwise, it doesn't. whatever happened in water, it doesn't count. You have to get baptized after you've called upon Christ to show what he has done done for you and what you will do for him. And it has to be by immersion. Identify with Jesus. You're not ashamed of him, are you? You need to identify with him. Now, for the bulk of us sitting here, okay, we're already baptized. The bulk of you have already followed him in that step. You've already got born again. Well, then let me encourage you this. Live up to the commitment you made, you showed when you got baptized. Examine your heart right now. Are you loyal to Christ? You said you would die to self and you would live for Christ. In fact, that passage goes on in Romans 6 and talks about that we should no longer live in sin. What about it? Are you as loyal to Christ now as what you said you were going to be? You can be. You ought to be. That's what your baptism meant. It meant that you were going to follow Christ. Then do it. If you're here this morning and you are a believer who's been baptized and you're following and you're living up to that commitment, then do this. Then you share the gospel with others and encourage them to get saved and become a disciple. First step after getting saved, get baptized and then teach them the word of God. You know, there's lots of confusion out there about baptism. I thought it appropriate since I haven't done some singular message on it for a while to just talk about it after our missions conference and to remind you that this is the great commission that applies to us here. That we make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and teaching them to observe all things. Observing all things includes another practice that is often misunderstood. That practice that many churches do, but yet it's done in different ways, is what we're talking about and going to do in these next few minutes. It's spoken about in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Would you join me there? In 1 Corinthians 11. Gentlemen, it would be okay to start buzzing the kids. In 1 Corinthians 11, we learn as he is reading and, or teaching about communion. He makes these comments. He says, if you jump down to verse 23. I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he is betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take, eat. This is my body, broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord in an unworthy fashion shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily in an unworthy fashion, eats and drinks damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak, and some even sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Can I, can I highlight just a couple things for you as the kids are coming in? Communion is to be done with regularity. As oft as you do it. We choose to do it once a month. But it's supposed to be a practice we do. It's a practice that this is remembering Christ. We're thinking about what Christ did for us. When we look at the cracker, the bread, how his body was broken. When we look at the juice, his blood was shed. We're remembering him. This is to be a time where we're rejoicing. The Eucharist, communion, literally means to be rejoicing. This is a time where we thank God. We praise God for what he's done. For what, he, what he's do, going to do in the future. Because these are the hors d'oeuvres the, that are the promise that we're going to be with him in heaven for a full meal one day. The appetizer, if you would. It is to be done with respect. We don't do this in an unworthy fashion. We, 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 sh, we shouldn't be worried about the phones, the games, we should be thinking about Christ, and when we think about him, we should be doing it with respect. He's God. He's the Lord who sacrificed for you. And so we come and we do this, not flippantly, not mechanically, but from our hearts with respect. And we do it that when we're right with one another. We don't want God to be judging us. We want to be judging ourselves. Am I right with family? Am I right with God? Am I harboring some unconfessed sin? Am I harboring some bitterness? My friend, I would would be remiss if I didn't warn you. God takes communion so seriously, He's looking at your heart. And if you're not right with Him or or others, He says there could be discipline, sickness, death, as He talks about, could happen. So we come with real seriousness, and if there is something that you need to resolve, you need to take care of, you need to reconcile, You either ask for forgiveness quickly, but if you've got to deal with it with somebody else, then you just let the elements go by. Well, we're not passing them. Just don't participate. Just sit quietly. But this service is done in praise to Christ, in thanksgiving to Christ, from hearts that are tender towards Christ. I hope that's your heart.